Check, baby, check, baby, one, two. I'm the worst at hosting things, so I'm just gonna be very awkward. Me and, too. <laughs> and say hello and welcome to <laughs> episode two. Are we maybe? episode two? <laughs> of the art cast. Oh, this is a different... This is kind podcast. of like a side podcast, or Look maybe at you. you just started podcasting. You already have two, <laughs> two I know. different podcasts. It's pretty wild. Maybe you need a third and a fourth one. <laughs> well, Every few weeks, you have a new podcast. They're all going to the same place, though, which is my YouTube channel. Maybe we should take two on that intro. I felt really bad about that one. Two hours later. I want to do a better intro first, so I'm just going to say... I like the intro. Hello and welcome to ArtCast (laughs) with Dylan and Roger. (laughs) Roger Buttles, come on down. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta have you walk in from a... And then everyone claps, and I'm wearing like a suit, like a. <laughs> you are wearing a suit, <laughs> not a real suit. Like you know, people dress crazy on the Price Is Right. So, Roger, what is the price of <laughs> <laughs> this, this frog? <laughs> the frog, seven ninety nine. Ten dollars. Ten dollars. You busted. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> it's okay. You can handle it. Uh, but anyway, so that was the intro. Now we have to record the outro. What were you, you going to say? These are like the, uh, the Axl Rose foam microphones. Remember he used to have the big foam? What around. color were his? I think his were like orange or yellow or something. Okay. Yeah. yeah, this is like a classic like foam device for microphones. I see them in all sorts of colors. Um, Axel Rose. We're going to be discussing Guns N' Roses <laughs> today to for an about, hour and a half. I have nothing else to say about that. Uh, I think there's definitely like a physical presence of people when they walk in a room too. That's that like you can't separate deny. separate from their actual like physical size, right? Like both. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I think sometimes like yeah. I don't know. It's a different subject, I guess. But. Yeah, like that's what I was trying to say about you earlier when we were at the museums. Like you, or like when you like order a cup of coffee or or in a restaurant, like you have that charisma about you. I don't know about that. (laughs) It's true. Or maybe it's just, I was shocked to hear you say that you used to be very shy. Like, because you you seem like one of the least shy people I can think of. But Uh. I get it because you're like, you have empathy for those that are shy. And I think that's how we like became such good friends is that you understood that I'm pretty reserved. Yeah. You like saw what we have in common regardless. And, uh, totally. Yeah. I was really, really, really shy as a kid. I think I had, I had three older siblings who were all really loud and outgoing and, Mm. So my earliest memories are just like sitting at the dining dining room table, the dinner table, just not saying anything as they were like screaming and just wouldn't stop talking. And 
Maybe that's where we we get that kinship from. We were both the youngest. Yeah. I was just of two siblings, but I, yeah. I always felt like the quiet yeah. baby of the family, too. Yeah. Yeah. But, but it's different when But then as you get three. older, I think you get less shy in a way. Maybe mm-hmm. you become more a little more comfortable in yourself. I don't know. Yeah, that definitely was true for me. I had to, like, I found my voice and started to have confidence that I, like, had something to say sometimes. Not yeah. always. <laughs> yeah. But it used to be such a, like, a, a hurdle to overcome to even, like, say something at a, even just hanging out with friends or like much less in a school, art school critique or mm-hmm. something. I was like dead silent most of the time because I was afraid that if I start talking, it would, it wouldn't come out or. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm glad I got over that with, at first, lots of self-medication. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> this stuff yeah. or like just ways to alter my consciousness to get out of my the habits and yeah the the lifestyle i had committed myself to was that was that a good enough intro should we do it again yeah (laughs) just the part where i say uh because i didn't even introduce you yet okay here here we go i gotta take a deep breath and put on my presenter (laughs) cap which well, we can edit all this out, right? We we can. Oh yeah, I I will definitely edit anything that I definitely is wasn't awkward. like thinking we were going to talk about Guns and Roses. <laughs> <laughs> this is Roger Buttles, an artist <laughs> from the East Coast, <laughs> flying into Chicago for a a show at a legendary apartment gallery, the Carl in Pilsen. Uh, that by the time you're hearing this, you might this will probably be a couple weeks from now when I edit and post this on YouTube, but uh, maybe we'll have some pictures of the show in the, in the YouTube video. I usually like inset some photos. Oh, nice. So if they're artists we discuss or your work or my work, we can put it on the screen. Um, But thank you for uh, joining me. Yeah. Thanks for having me. No, this is great. My first, Podcast interview. <laughs> the way you just said podcast like sums up everything I love about your your accent and your tone of voice. It's just <laughs> something very endearing and like adorable about it. My first podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's my uh, Long Island voice. <laughs> my <Yeah>. roots. <laughs> so, uh, born in Long Island. Yeah, <laughs> I don't. I won't force you to give a whole biography maybe we can put it in the description or something oh yeah well i do want to ask how like you got into art and um yeah and that kind of thing i well i was as a little kid i was just like every other little kid i feel like who just naturally want to draw and paint i see that with my daughters now all the time like they're always drawing i think there's something about like childhood and creativity of a way of just expressing yourself and understanding the world around you through mark making like drawing and i think there's also a bit of as a kid you're always being told what you can and cannot do you know um by your parents or teachers or school or whatnot even before then 
And so art was, is a way of doing what you want to do. It's like freedom as a kid. I think there's something that happens with little kids, like subconsciously, where they can feel like total freedom with art making. So I always felt like that as a little kid. And when I, I still remember as a kid when I, because I was really shy when I would go to nursery school, I would just go in the corner to the easel and just like draw and paint. And I really wouldn't socialize with anyone. And I would cry a lot. And the teacher would have to send me home a lot of times. And uh, my siblings still tease me to this day that I failed nursery school because I had to do it two years in a row because <laughs> I like couldn't handle it. Not like you were held back. No, <laughs> it was Just more a funny, social funny anxiety. Okay. Like I wasn't ready for the social interaction of like regular school, I guess. Um, Even with three older siblings, like, well, I guess stranger kids that you didn't know. Like, that was more uncomfortable. Yeah, because this is really fact I was really shy as a kid. Mm-hmm. I was really shy. and I, Would you, you said you would go and draw and paint in that school? Yeah. Instead of interacting? That yeah. was your kind of outlet? Yeah, I remember that. Sense. I really remember loving the color red, too, as a kid, because it was so intense. Um, is this when you my favorite color. drew Jaws? Yeah. <laughs> the poster. Yes. You gotta send yeah. me that photo. I yeah. can put it put it on the screen. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. A lot of those. Yeah, exactly. Maybe uh, that was even a little later. That looked like a more sophisticated a maybe like six or seven. Yeah, maybe I was about that age. I but, don't know. Could have been. Um Your your girls are almost six, right? Yeah. So and they their drawings are getting very sophisticated. Yeah. Like, totally. Uh, would you say their style is similar to yours at that their age? I think Ione, um, maybe a little more so. Una, my other daughter, they're twins, um, has like a little more refined style to her. I think it's a little more controlled, and Ione's maybe a little more me- free, looser. Um, but I think that naturally happens too as kids developed they get more refined because they learn what things are supposed to look like yeah you know and they try to make it look more accurate so can we can we go deeper into this idea of like the freedom of art at that age because that's different from how i would describe it like you feel like a child because you're like set in this box of being a kid and your parents and your teachers and whoever they give you rules that you have to follow so drawing is like an outlet for freedom um that's kind of how I thought of it as a little kid. And that would make sense with you having like a looser like style, not really following conventions of drawing, just like playing with color and like yeah. getting to red. Yeah, like I look at my daughter's work and I, I see how they make work and it's it's so intuitive. There's no yeah. there's no like second guessing. Occasionally one of my daughters kind of cries when she doesn't get things quote unquote right. You know, but like Una? more Una, yeah. But more or less, it's just like they just do it, and then they say like, "Oh, that that's a penguin, or that's a that's a crab." <laughs> like I was showing you the other night, like, and things just in their mind make perfect sense. Um, but as a viewer, you don't know it's a, it's abstracted. You know, um, I bet having kids and now seeing them start to make art has like put you in touch again with like how you felt at that age 
I'm totally. Just, I'm just being guessing. a parent. Like, and I like all the art to... that I'm making now is really, it's all based on my kids mm-hmm. and like what it means to be a parent now as an artist and raising kids and having all those responsibilities, but then also seeing, um, seeing how they think about the world too. And like incorporating that into the, the art. Cause it, it has, I think having, having kids, and I'm sure most people feel this way, makes you remember what it was like to be a kid. Yeah. That's, that's kind of what I was getting at. Yeah. Cause I have no, I can't really put myself in that mindset of like when I was five or whatever, like drawing for the first time. I know I did it a lot, but that's why I was asking about freedom. Cause I don't think it was necessarily freedom that made me do it so much. It, if anything, it was like control over mm. <laughs> something or like feeling like, um, fulfilled to have like made something like the, the pride of like, I can make this look yeah. like a, for some reason, the thing that sticks in my head is a drawing of camcorder that I drew and I had to go like hang out at one of my sister's dance classes. Someone had a camcorder and I just like drew it in my oh, sketchbook awesome. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> and getting like praised by like my mom or yeah. I think even the parent who owned the camcorder was like, wow, your little kid drew that camcorder and like all the details of the That's amazing. <laughs> machinery. Do you and still have the drawing? It might be in like a sketchbook at my mom's house somewhere. Yeah. I should I should go look it up and <laughs> and take a picture of it for this. But uh I might have been a little older too, maybe six or seven. Yeah. But it was like that feeling of like having made something that wasn't there before. Which there's freedom in that for sure, but it's like I never really felt constricted or confined. I always pretty much followed rules and didn't feel the need to rebel pretty much never until maybe like yeah late teens like it, yeah um, yeah but there is definitely that element of pride after making an artwork yeah i mean i don't think that goes away like no. after i mean right like don't you feel even if no one else likes it like it, I mean, even if everyone else hates it after you make it like hopefully you still feel a sense of like pride like i did that that didn't exist before and i put that in into the world i think it should be i think artists should strive for that maybe a lot of a lot of times we don't or i definitely make art sometimes where i'm not happy with it but those don't really see the light of day or i don't show them to anyone yeah i mean there's still like criticality involved too but when you do something that you like there's a sense of pride i see that with my kids too they're so excited to show me their art Mm mm-hmm yeah. And then that puts a lot of responsibility on as a parent, like how to look at their work and respond to it. Critique them. Constructively. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, the Maybe proportions are wrong, but. <laughs> um, I was going to say, uh, as you get to be an adult artist and like doing this thing that comes so naturally to kids, like striving for that freedom and even that like feeling of pride when you do something good like it gets harder and harder to access i i feel like like i have to like trick myself into feeling free in the studio which yeah. is kind of a bummer that i can't just do it naturally yeah to go back i never had any formal training in mm-hmm. in drawing or painting for years until my early 20s 
So when I started making work again, my early 20s, I, um, I kind of picked up with this similar sort of mentality of like limitations within technical abilities, but then also like a sense of this is something that's freeing. Yeah. So whenever I'm disappointed with my work, I feel like it's because I put too many constraints on myself or heard too many outside voices and lost that sense of freedom. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. That actually seems very like a very healthy mindset to approach art. (laughs) <laughs> like without just coming into basically with the unchanged mindset of a child making art because you yeah. haven't spent the last 10, 12 years like being trained in what art should be. And right. Like, yeah. Because they always say like when you get out of art school, especially like grad school, you kind of have to unlearn a lot of that like yeah. dogma so you can get back to the freedom thing. Totally. It's great to have all the technical skills along the way. So if you can pick those up, but not let it change your mentality. Yeah. It's the best case scenario, I think. Yeah. Knowing what to learn and what to forget is always seemed like an mm-hmm. important. You didn't take any art classes in undergrad? Like drawing photography. And painting and stuff? Just photography? Yeah. Like and darkroom style and everything? Yeah. Yeah. And some photo history. Um and then after college, I started taking some adult educated education, um, drawing and painting classes at um, CCAC, California College of Arts and Craft, and mm-hmm. San Francisco Art Institute in, in um, the Bay Area. I was taking drawing, like nighttime drawing and painting, and oh, wow. then paint, you know, doing work on my own. So just to get the foundation, yeah, you know. I didn't but, realize you took like those adult classes. Yeah, for a couple of years, and then I also worked with a mentor, this woman Eleanor Kent, who was she was a student of Elmer Bischoff back in like the fifties, the Bay Area figurative movement. So when I started working with Eleanor, she I was like twenty four, and she was seven. I want to say she was like seventy five or something like that. I can't. I don't know exactly how old she was, but so I used to go over to her house on Sunday morning, and we would draw and paint together (laughs) and so i kind of had this very like informal training from her and then you know continuing ed classes and just making work constantly i was working in a frame shop and a gallery and just constantly going to art shows in the in the bay area and learning more and more discovering things on my own but not from like a uh very traditional perspective i guess did those that like mentor and uh the drawing and painting classes you took do you you still think of those lessons a lot when you work like how to mix color and draw a certain way like do you think it really stuck with you those lessons um the attitude of how to make work from eleanor was really helpful um Mm-hmm. She was very like uh, liberating in her approach. Um, so well, I don't think I don't about like mixing color because I just do that now. Just I just mix how I mix. I don't yeah. think like. Uh, um, was she a more abstract painter? Like very figurative. Oh. Okay. Yeah, but she wasn't known outside of the Bay Area. 
But that, that scene, the Bay Area figurative scene, that's Bischoff was part of that, right? Yeah. And like, and like Nathan Oliveira and Lobdell and Deep in Corn and Park mm. and all that. But they were old they were older than her. She, yeah. I they figured. were like her teachers. They were her teachers kind of. Right. So, she was good friends with uh Ruth Asawa. Do you know um, her? I don't know Sorry, her. you should check her out. She, she also a Bay Area figurative. She was, yeah. She it's was a great like book fin- of them that I used to. One of my painting teachers had a big book of Bay Area figurative painters. I would, I would just love flipping through. Yeah, yeah. Uh, some great work in that scene. And then I think also like the whole Mission School movement definitely influenced me too, with like Chris Johansson and Alicia yeah. McCarthy and some of those artists just. Like, they were all self-taught, you know, very loose from free and colorful and bright, abstract, but also figures and just, like, like raw. street art influence, too? Was that part of the mission school? I wasn't really... No, I didn't really know much about the street art or, like, graffiti, but... Chris Johansson was never involved in the graffiti thing? I don't know if he was doing graffiti. I don't think so. But he was using a lot of, like, found material, I believe, so... All right. Uh, <laughs> you is leaning your head on a giant base headstock. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this but. is a very fascinating conversation. The idea of like the child mentality versus us as trained artists. Yeah. Because there's a jump ahead, and we you went to art school. That's how we met. That's how I see. MFA program, which but is, you were uh, taking a lot of drawing classes throughout your like formative years and growing yeah. up, right? Well, I wouldn't say like an unusual amount. I took a couple classes. Uh, did we talk about this yesterday or something? Was I telling you about yeah how my dad taught yeah. at SAIC so he could get me and my sister like a free class and it was usually in the summers we would take a drawing and painting class for for middle schoolers. We did those a few times when I was like between 10 and 13. But after that, I just took like, I always chose to take art as my elective in high school. And it was just pretty basic public school art classes that I just happened to like really devote a lot of time and attention to. Um, And then I went to art school for undergrad. Right. But I kind of always knew what I wanted to do was just to like get really good at the technical side of mm-hmm. figure painting and painting and you in did general. it <laughs> I, you're doing yes, it i did it yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there wasn't much for me to like have to unlearn because it was all maybe there actually is and i just haven't successfully unlearned the things that are shackling me yet mm. and i i there's because what i was saying about trying to be more free in the studio that's a constant struggle like i always have voices in my head saying like this isn't this isn't right, or like, yeah. I have to, th- I have to, but my favorite pieces I've ever made were totally spontaneous, just like yeah, yeah, yeah. letting my intuition run wild, and those are my favorite things. Totally, yeah. So I have to. There's tap a lot into to be that. said for that. Yeah, children are like the wisest people. Yeah, <laughs> they just don't have a lot of like experience and technical skills and and whatnot. But in terms of mindset, like it's so, they're so advanced. I think there's <laughs> a lot to be said for intu- intuitive decision making in art. Yeah. 
just what naturally comes to you because that's I think where your voice really is it's it's like beneath all the waves of the noise and like lower down like I was thinking of the analogy of like a scuba diver when you're on the surface of the ocean there's so much waves and noise chaos and then you go down under the water and everything becomes very calm and peaceful and Mm. I kind of think that I think about that in the studio sometimes, like Ooh. how many voices are in my head right now telling me what I'm doing wrong and then losing those voices. Yeah. I remember when I worked with Bill O'Brien in school, he gave me, he said to me something, I forget exactly what, but it was basically like, you know, you do a lot of really weird, interesting things when you just, very naturally to you. And then he said, but then you go back and you quote unquote, like correct them. And then he said, he said, and, and that ruins all the work, like, cause you're taking out the intuitive things that come naturally to you and trying to make it look how it's supposed to look. And he's like, you should leave those parts. And that kind of stuck with me. Yeah. Um, that's a great quote or like memory from your advising. Yeah, it's funny because you get so many voices and so much advice and critique in school, and then you kind of just remember select little snippets, and that, totally. those are the ones that stay with you. And they're the <laughs> kind of things that probably if you like talk to that teacher again and said like, I remember you said this to yeah. me, they would probably not even yeah. remember. It's just totally. a casual comment they said that totally. was exactly what you needed at that moment, yeah, or, or just stuck with you for some reason. Yeah. For sure. I love those little like memories of advice that, that just you always carry with you. Yeah. Um, that scuba diver like thing is really interesting. Like, can you elaborate that on, uh, on that a little, like you're in the studio and you have all that noise, but when you, you can, how do you go deep to like get to the quiet, peaceful part? Does it take work or like meditation or something? Meditation will help, yeah, but um, getting lost in music, I find, while I work is helpful. Hmm. Trying to remind myself that my hand is smarter than my my mind. You know, like my hand, let my hand just do things without letting my mind tell it what to do. Or you can think about like a sports analogy too. You know, like if, if someone's like, I don't know, like playing in a basketball game. You can't think, oh, I'm going to dribble here and then I'm going to go fast there and and pump fake and then take a <laughs> shot. You know, you can't like consciously think all these things out. You just have to react spontaneously and go do what you do on the basketball court. And I yeah. think there's some kind of like that with painting and art making too, like how much thinking can go into it. I mean, I think you need to, not you, just anyone helps if like you go spontaneously intuitively making work and then you can step back and like think critically about it like then you have your time out and like mm-hmm. look at what what's going on okay how yeah. do i respond to that and react and then go out again so um i saw a great quote plastered on the room i teach figure drawing and that was a great way of putting that where like making and critiquing are, are two separate processes yeah. like you should never combine them basically yeah like do the do the judging thing when you're not making totally 
Like, you feel that when you make music, too. I'm assuming it's the same exact way, right? Like, you can't think yeah. consciously, like, I'm going to strum this note, then that note, and then move my finger. Like, you couldn't, your muscle memory just has to kick in. Yeah, there, when you start doing that, you know, it's it's kind of it's not going to work. Yeah. <laughs> but no one really tells you that when you're learning when you're learning to draw and when you're learning to like play an instrument or something no one really explains this part to you like to to really play or make art at a high level you you have to like it's a state of flow that like you can't really teach you can tell people about it and like <laughs> encourage them to access it but there's no real like shortcut you can't intellectualize it you just yeah. have to do it I think there's a lot of similarities between like music, visual art, and for me, sports. I played a lot of sports growing up. Mm-hmm. This this idea that you learn the fundamentals, whether it's like notes on a guitar or strumming patterns, or you know, skills of like how to shoot a basketball or whatever sport you're playing, how to hit a baseball. You know, the technical skills of like swinging about. You got to learn those fundamentals. But then once you learn them. You can't think about them. Yeah. You just do them. So it's just muscle memory. And like drowning out all the outside noise. So I do I do think meditation's helpful. This is like I think really good stuff about uh the nature of creativity and stuff. Yeah. I love that. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> This made it way worse by like mentioning the eye contact while choosing. I know. Now (laughs) neither of us are going to be able to. You really never, never heard someone say like, you got to make eye contact when you choose or is it take a shot? Is that only for taking a shot? I don't, I don't think so. (laughs) I thought it was for like shaking hands. Oh. You're supposed to make eye contact shaking hands. That's I've never it. thought about making eye contact when cheers. Okay. Maybe I just like misheard something. Because <laughs> like, yeah, eye contact was never my strong suit. Still yeah. like not my favorite thing to do. <laughs> Unless it's like someone I know well. Yeah. But even then I have to like look away a lot to just reset my totally social battery. <laughs> yeah. No, I, yeah. I shouldn't even mention these things because now we just aren't going to be able to not think about it. (laughs) How about like the freedom of the studio? Something that always is on my mind and kind of prevents me from being free is like the materials. Like Mm. they they cost money. They're finite. And I don't just mean like, I don't mind spending money to prepare new canvases and like the paint itself isn't that expensive, but I go through a lot of labor preparing like oil grounds. Yeah. And I have like a few nicely prepared surfaces ready to go and this is kind of my own fault i developed a way of working that like requires me to start on that white oil ground and like remove the highlights and like i rely on the oil ground to make my work so i kind of get one shot at a good image and if it if it fails i have to like Uh, pretty much oil ground over it because then you don't have the oil ground exposed anymore yeah I see. So I've like limited myself. The results when it works, I really love more so than when I worked more conventionally. So it intensifies things. It does. I still I still know that freedom and intuition is the answer, but it's harder. I've more that's another voice in my head. That's like interesting. The waste of materials is always like a, yeah, a, another stressor. But it really shouldn't be, and I should actually be more comfortable with like rolling with 
things I don't like and learning how to fix them because that's definitely a good skill too. Do you, when you're making your work, if something goes quote unquote wrong, do you fix it and then carry on or do you carry on and then look back at the work? Because the reason I ask this is because I got into this horrible habit in grad school when something would quote unquote go wrong and I would spend time obsessing over the thing that was wrong, trying to fix it, fix it, fix it, and then carry on. And um, that, like, um, spontaneity was gone then. And I realized paintings were taking me way longer than they used to because I was being so self-critical during the process. Mm -hmm. And I kind of undid that. And then I would realize if I didn't fix the quote-unquote mistake, and I just kept working. And by the end of the painting, I no longer saw that as a mistake. It totally, totally worked within the whole context of the painting. So when you make your work, because you have this added pressure, like the oil ground exposure, do you um, like over-critique yourself if something goes what you see is wrong, or do you just like yeah. keep working on it? Well, to me, like keep working on it is like the correction of little minute errors. And like, I noticed so many times exactly what you're saying, like the little mistakes, they're not just okay. They're usually like better than the things that I like have fixed and, mm -hmm. and made better. So it like goes back to what Bill O'Brien said too, like not to fix the, the errors and, or like the parts that are just your intuition. Yeah. Uh, it's so hard to recognize that. Like, I just started filming myself painting a lot over the summer. I was just, like, trying to make time-lapse videos of me working. Mm -hmm. And I would watch it back and see mm. a moment, like, halfway through the video. Where I'm like, oh, it looks so good there. And I'll keep watching. And I'll realize I, like, totally ruin it. And, like, and I don't realize I'm doing it. I'm ruining yeah. it at the time. I think I'm making it better. But there was a place where it's, like, really nice. Mm-hmm. So, like, I, my big thing I think I need to work on is, like, recognizing that moment when it happens and, and stopping. Age-old artist problem, Isn't like, that, stopping. It's so, it's so interesting because, yeah, it's an age-old artist problem, but now there's this technology where you could film yourself working and be able to pause time yeah. and look at that instant or the, those moments that, where things changed in the work. And then think, oh, like have some insight into your process that you yeah. might not be able to have. Like you're essentially looking, you're like separating yourself from yourself, watching yourself work, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's a little weird, but it yeah, totally is. It's like studying film of yourself or something. <laughs> For sports. Yeah. That's, did, you, uh, did you have to do that in, uh, when you played Sometimes. lacrosse? <laughs> yeah. You would watch your, your coach Sometimes, or yeah, like I'm sure like, Pitchers do this all the time. They watch their, you know, they film themselves pitching and then watch their mechanics and how to fix it. Wow. You know? Um, yeah, that's that's such a weird contradiction of the whole, like, artists need to just follow your intuition because it's true that when you're in the moment doing the thing, you have to be totally free and not thinking, but that analysis part is also important to like step step back and see like what you want to change and yeah how you want to improve yeah you can't just be like willy-nilly doing whatever comes to mind forever like you there are artists who do that but right you're also striving for something specific maybe 
Well, I think there's a difference between like um, freedom and spontaneity and just like carefreeness or like not work. You know, I'm not saying everyone should just work spontaneously and everything should just be completely loose because there are certain artists who need to be very refined in order for their work to be what they need it to be. Mm-hmm. But so I can only speak like mostly for, for myself, you know. Um, yeah, there's like so we went to the Bridget Riley show yesterday of the drawings. Like she can't just be spontaneous and intuitive and loose. There needs to be a lot of planning in her work, and it's mm-hmm. amazing. That's her practice. Like teach their own. They have their own practice that has to work for them. But I wonder if there's some part of her planning those things where she gets like that flash of inspiration, like mm-hmm. this optical effect she wants to create, and like how how trippy would it be if these ribbons of teal and pink yeah. changed color, and and that's like the impulse that gets her to slow down and do all the planning and labor involved. Yeah, yeah. That's, there's the yeah. uh, the left and the right part of the brain going yeah. into the process. Like for some people, the right side plays more of a role, and for some people, the left side plays more of a role. The I always get him confused because like the handedness like is reverse, right? Your left side yeah, yeah. controls your right hand, yeah. and your right half controls your left hand. But the right half is more creative, right? The creative, free yeah. fall, flowing side. Yes, left is more analytical. Left is more analytical, I believe. More like math, science, formula, perspective, mm-hmm. right? It's more creative. Yeah, that's interesting because most artists are like using a combination of them. But yeah, what what's the ratio of? Yeah, or like going back and forth, or using certain parts of your brain for certain parts of the artwork, and then other parts. You know, like some parts need to be more planned or laid out or thought mm-hmm. through, and then other parts need to just be looser, and they work together. Yeah. The watching film <laughs> analogy, I, that's going to stick with me. I love that idea. Because I've never played sports yeah. uh, to any degree of competency, so I never had to watch film of myself. Yeah. I'd imagine I, I would cringe so hard. <laughs> Well, you're doing it with painting now. Yeah, I'm doing it with painting. <laughs> Do you cringe? I cringe when I lose that moment where I think it looks great and it looks nothing like that by the end of my like hour-long video clip. Yeah. Uh, like just watching it and fast forward. But, and the fact that like that version of the painting will never exist again. Right. I kept going. The old ground is dried or like the paint is dried. It's not, it's not going to be the same ever. Mm-hmm. But I, I know... I guess I could like think about it in the next one. There was this uh, this show at the Met a few years ago with um, I don't know if it was uh, Matisse. It was in the base in the uh, lower level, and it was the I think it's called like the Pink Nude or something like that. The woman she's on like the side of the she's in the bath with the blue tiles. Hmm. I don't know if you, you can put it on your yeah, I'll uh, put it in there in podcast. But anyway, what he did was he painted like 32 paintings or something like that and he would just paint over it and paint over it and paint over it but each one he would take a photo of it so there, there was this grid of the photos and you could see like the different possibilities of what the piece was and each one would have been a great painting of on, in and of itself 
but it just wasn't exactly what he wanted. But so um, when he eventually got what he wanted, that was what the piece ended up being. But it's um, it's interesting to think that where would if if you were making the paintings, like would you have stopped on like number seven or number fourteen? Which one? would have spoken to you. And that's how it is with all of our art, right? Like, where do we stop? Where do we go? Yeah. Everyone sees it differently. I think it's rarely like the ideal place. <laughs> like, it's always a compromise. Like, you get to a certain spot where you're like, motivation runs out. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good enough, but yeah. it, might not, it might fall short of something in your head. But there's a beauty in that of just accepting, like, this is what it is. Totally. No one else could have made this. So it is like, it has some merit. It's like mm-hmm. a thing. It, the ideal of what it could be like the, is kind of irrelevant, I feel like. Or does it say like what you want it to say? Which like, I never know what I want to say until I'm done, basically. Yeah. <laughs> I know there's a abstract like aesthetic ideal I'm striving towards, like trying to push it in a direction I like, but... As far as like subject matter, that always comes later for me mm-hmm. in in my favorite work. I used to try to plan it out, like I want a piece that is about this topic, and mm. then I like, and then it always falls flat to me. To me, or it, I get bored working on it very quickly. But going in and just making image, like making an image without a plan, having some like random chance thrown in to like throw some some left turns into it. Like I get to be like surprised by the outcome. Yeah. And I can analyze it myself. I can think about it, which is fun. Yeah. What about you? Do you like when you pick an image, you're using like you're sketching and, and using source images or like, do you have a plan in, in mind for what it's going to be about? Yes. And no, sometimes I work differently. Sometimes I'll work from like a source material or a photograph I've taken and I want to incorporate that into the image or that is going to be the image. And then other times I'm working more intuitively. Like um, normally whenever it's like a, a landscape type painting, there's I'm not working from any image or even any drawing. It just going for it Mm -hmm. but then if there's a figure involved or like a specific scene then i'll normally work from a source material um so a lot of your landscape and like nature stuff is just fully like drawn or painted from your mind with no no plan or sketching involved you just start on the final surface yeah that makes sense i can kind of see how like they're they're looser and like they seem to have like their own logic to them or like yeah because with the landscape it's more about creating a like a dreamlike atmosphere that's distorting space um so if there was too much planning i think that could be that could be lost but i want there to be a sense a lot of the time i felt a sense of like a floating like you're you're there's not a ground you're on, but you're like looking down at the space mm-hmm. um like a dreamlike kind of a sense of unease in the piece because i I want that to exist with the landscapes because a lot about a lot of the landscape work is about human uh impact on 
the environment. So by having it disorienting, I kind of feel like that's how I feel about what we're doing to yeah. the environment. It's it's uneasy. So uh, is is that always the effect you're seeking when you do things that are like spatially impossible? Like are you trying to to show disorder and and unease? Unease. Yeah. Um, and a lack of control, you know, in like your dreams, you can't con really control things. Yeah. You can experience things, but you can't really control it. And that's kind of how I feel. I mean, I think that's how probably a lot of people feel in this day and age about the mm -hmm. planet. You know, you want to do the right thing and make the right decisions, but you also feel like powerless in a lot of ways or you shouldn't, but you do. Yeah. Um, so, um, the landscapes, none. Of, I don't use any source material, and it's um, the concepts are also involving. We're doing we're doing things to the environment, but there's a memory, and the environment's gonna starting to do things back to us. We think of ourselves as being in control, but. Really like the earth is in control. And unfortunately, that's going to be frightening over the next, you know, 50 years or whatnot. The earth is in control? Or are we, have we just gone so far in our effect on the earth that it's just a snowball rolling down, turning into an avalanche? That I think whatever like we do to the earth, the earth is going to do back to us. Like a karmic kind of way. Whoa. You know, so like <laughs> we create, you know, we raise the temperature of the planet. The planet's going to respond. <laughs> you know, so us. like what goes around comes around in a way, you know, if we. So that's that's where the unease is in the work. Because like, mm -hmm. we're doing certain things to the earth. But the earth is going to do certain things back. It's going to respond back. Not not maliciously or benevolently, but just matter-of-factly. Yeah, the Earth doesn't really have feelings. Yeah. <laughs> well, I probably shouldn't say that. It could, it could very yeah. well, but what... Or motivations, it's just... a bunch of reactions and factors, like, affecting each other and reverberating yeah. millions and trillions of times. <laughs> yeah, so you can't... So, like, to make a painting about that interaction between humans and the environment and the environment and humans, it's not really something you can plan out, per se. That no. That has to be expressed, like... Um, like, ethereally, or, like, you know, very... Um, like spiritually almost, or, you know, there's a abstraction to it. But if yeah. I'm making a painting that has, like, one of my daughters in it, I need a, a source material to work from to answer your question, if that answered your question. Yeah, it, it does. And it kind of reminds me that you have so many, like, bodies of work. Like, And yeah. I was telling you last night that I, I think you have a very recognizable style through all of it, but you've, like, explored so many themes and and like ways of working like combining lots of like diagrammatic like yeah. mathematical 
imagery and like symbols with uh yeah with landscapes and figures and and this like spiritual stuff like you you've really done all done it all yeah <laughs> like in terms of subject matter <laughs> and Im- image uh like source material I or think the one thereof. thing that kind of connects it all is like my feelings my thought about space space mhm space um spatial patterns or like disorienting space that seems to be like a theme that keeps coming back into my work whether they're like the big scroll drawings i did at your space or my paintings it's always about disorienting space that that seems to be like a recurring thing that comes into the work yeah to, and to bring up like the show at myspace uh myspace.com yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no uh it was called Sight Red, but you had Our Only Day was the name of your exhibition. Mm-hmm. And there was lots of spatial disorientation within the scrolls themselves, but even yeah. how you laid it out, we like made almost like a maze or, yeah. of like these intersecting banners that sort of like had back and front sides and you could totally. like walk around. Um, and lately you've been working more like singular paintings on stretched canvas yeah uh but does do you ever think of messing around with like the presentation in a spatially disorienting way because i yeah, think that well, was kind of disorienting i mean those works had a lot to deal with fragility and and life and um a lot of it had to do with loss of life at a very young age and this idea of like pregnancy and birth and life and death and just the frig- fragility of that time. <laughs> yeah. um, and so that's why a lot of those works were works on paper and fabric. They're, you know, dyed, hand-dyed fabrics, and they were very fragile pieces, as you know. And then I had that horrible studio flood when all those works got destroyed. <laughs> Ironically. Um, kind of like fitting full circle of that yeah. series. And so... After that happened, I just psychologically, emotionally needed to stop working with material that was so fragile for a while. And I was just, yeah. I was, I'm just going to go back to making paintings on campus really straightforward. And if, yeah, <laughs> if yeah. there's a, another studio flood, they'll probably survive. They'll survive. Yeah. <laughs> but that, but. The original idea of um, working on like long, narrow scrolls was a way of um, further disorienting space because if if they were more rectangular pieces, you could lay out the con- the information in the piece in a more realistic manner. But if you were like to stretch something out, and mm-hmm. put the same information in that piece, well, then it just naturally becomes disorienting. Um, so I was really into that concept um, of, like, disorienting space simply through the size of the the uh, artwork that I chose to work on. Yeah. I still love that series. Thank you. <laughs> it was, and it was a beautiful show, Uh the fact that it none of that work exists anymore is like all the more like it's it's so painful to to realize that like you can't ever like 
show those again or yeah or like sell them or or anything that people do with art we make like it's just so funny. Just display them again but yeah at least we had that one like opportunity i'm so to thankful share. to you that we did you know because they're gone and it was funny and not funny but it was ironic because a lot of the work had to deal with impermanence like the impermanence of life and like really appreciating things while you have them because you never know when something's going to be taken away yeah and that happened to all that work so but i'm so thankful to you that we got to show them before they did Mm -hmm. and i can revisit the themes and maybe i could see myself going back and working on more scrolls down the road but maybe they'll be like scrolls on canvas instead of paper yeah you know (laughs) 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 well you and i have talked a lot over the years too so it just feels like we're just hanging out talking yeah it was really nice going to the museum with you yesterday too yeah it was really fun um it's so funny because i think about you a good amount when i go when I go to the Met or when I'm like been to like the Louvre or the Prada or like yesterday at the Art Institute, because I I was like hold you to such a high standard when it comes to like technical capabilities, you know, what you're able to do. Technically, your proficiency is so unbelievable. And so when I look at like Rubens or, you know, like Botticelli or someone, I, I always think like, who do I know? Like, that's capable of making paintings like this today. And there really aren't a lot of artists out there that have the technical facility. I I mean, who can make like Renaissance type paintings today. I think there was, there was a, um, I think Hockney spoke about this once, how he said about the three things you need for making great artwork, your eye, your hand. And I think he, I can't remember if it was your mind or your heart. I can't remember the third one. But Mm -hmm. he basically said, like, a lot of people are losing that technical skills in today's time, like the hand. Um, Yeah, they're not really taught in art, like the premier art schools, that as much as they would have been 100, 150 years ago or whatever. Yeah. So conceptual, the focus of most, like, higher education in art. Totally. Which is important but is art just going to become like the realm of just like smart, clever, uh, like (laughs) conceptual pieces that don't really like, are we just going to lose all the, like the technical side of painting, Mm -hmm. which is probably appropriate. Have you, I don't know if you've been following the, uh, rise of AI generated art just in the last couple months, it's exploded to where artificial intelligence uh, has been able to like render incredibly like beautiful like painterly images yeah. based on any text prompt you feed in, and like gives you many options. <laughs> yeah, that's with, not surprised. Um, yeah. yeah, it it's really not. But um, I listened to some like tech podcast, and like this is really like unprecedented. Like just a year ago, this wasn't possible mm-hmm. to have like the fidelity, and it's going to transition to video. Like you'll be able to just render a. Hollywood looking movie with just like AI generated yeah. effects. Yeah. So with that in mind, like having the ability to render something with paint is such a niche like 
not super marketable skill, like besides it being like a one of a kind artwork and like that that's what will be the value of art and just the fact that it came from like your subconscious and your, your yeah. heart and like and not just like a computer. But as far as the technique involved, like it's gonna be more and more irrelevant, basically, knowing how to paint. Mm-hmm. Um but at the same time, you could also argue there's going to be less and less supply of yeah, maybe <laughs> talented people who can make the painting. So they'll become more and more rare. And whenever things become more and more rare, they become more and more sought after and appreciated. Um, and the yeah. human element like, is so, I feel like it's so important because they made that work because of who they are, because of their life experiences, because how they see the world, because of how they respond to the world and observe things and make thing make that specific artwork. So like just for argument's sake, if we were to take that small painting of yours, which I absolutely love, and put it on the wall and then right next to it you'd take an artificially AI painting, it was the exact same rendering your piece will have that much more meaning because it came from you, from your life experience, where something else just came from a a computer that can follow a program. There's no soul right. to the piece. Yeah. And I, it can be I replicated agree. over and over and over again too. Yeah. I, I think, I think you're right that the human made the human touch will always add a, like a special thing that and like we saw the hockney ipad show last mm-hmm. night mm-hmm. uh that's what like these ai generated pieces would look like printed out or projected they're just flat they they don't have dimension and like texture right. Right. even a very f- smooth flat oil painting like there's layers and there's like yeah. pigment and like real stuff like mm-hmm. physical matter used in an extremely complex and like intricate way to make that image but it, it comes down to like what what do people like look to art for? And if you have the ability, you want to see an image of something, and you can just type it in, and like yeah. there it is—a beautifully rendered image of like some, like a dragon killing right. a a <laughs> boar. Yeah, yeah. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. Just like whatever your flight of fancy <laughs> wants at that moment, you mm-hmm. can make it. You don't have to like pay an artist to do it for you. Or, and then it or ends like, up on your computer screen. Yeah, but you could print it on canvas or right. something and have a one-of-a-kind artwork made by an AI. Yeah. And if, it'll serve the function of, like, art. But um, but if art is, like, supposed to be, like, a celebration of, like, individuals and their unique vision, then it'll it'll always be around. But it's very interesting to see how, like, the role of visual art will change in the next 50 years, like, when this stuff gets even more prevalent. Mm-hmm. I've heard the concept artists for like Hollywood studios or video games and stuff, they'll be the first to take a hit because their work is kind of disposable to begin with. Mm. They're doing it to like generate an image for a production to like have as a reference. And right now they get paid a lot to do that because it takes skills and years of training. But if AI can just make an image that's just as good or better for free, right. <laughs> like those artists are out of a job because yeah. they're not being paid for their unique talent they're being paid to like cheaply make an image i think this is going to happen across 
every sector in every field where artificial intelligence is going to take away jobs. Mm -hmm. And I mean, not to get too into like the social, political, economic ideas, but it, it, in order for people to survive, there's going to have to be like a, a minimum income that people get because jobs are going to keep disappearing. Um, in order yeah. for people to survive. Universal so basic income. You know, you're talking about these people in Hollywood who are graphic designers or whatnot. I mean, think about how many people make their living that way. If all those jobs are gone, then, well, where do they go? And, you know, and you see it right now when whenever you go into, like, a CVS or something, the cashiers are replaced with the automatic checkout or, like, grocery stores. So I actually mm -hmm. never go on those lines. I'd rather wait like five or ten minutes to interact with the person because they're so the these are like the more blue collar type people are affected. But what are we gonna do as that like technology moves up the ladder? So like my wife's a radiologist, you know. What if there's AI that can read imaging? You know, then you start mm -hmm. to see like doctors losing their jobs and you know, um start replacing people in all sorts of fields. I mean, we're talking about artists. We should probably be the last ones to be replaced by AI. Yeah. <laughs> we're we're but, dealing with the heart and with emotions, which like AI, AI will never have, like, or memories and feelings. like. Yeah. But anything that a computer can, like, analyze data or, like, perform a task with some machinery attached to it, like, there'll be no need for, for humans to like devote their lives to, to there's so many tasks that like yeah. we rely on people for that will probably no longer be the case in who knows how long. Yeah. But how maybe, we get on that subject? You? <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to talk a bit about like, music but this conversation is honestly so fascinating about like visual art and creativity yeah, well, but like i don't really want to stop but well it's interesting because you do both music and art and i don't do music so you can but go you have a things. very strong passion for it i love you yeah, yeah yeah and it affects I've, the way you make art I find myself more and more as I get older listening to classical music all the time i love classical music now and i, and I never really liked it growing yeah. up that was so boring. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think I, I would guess like eighty percent of music, eighty percent of the time I listen to music, I put on classical. It's really, cool. um, I find it very calming and uplifting and meditative. And, um, and so I when love you sing it live, uh, I love going to the symphony or the ballet, mm -hmm. um, and. I find myself putting on records at home that are ballet, that are um, classical. And um, it's it's interesting because I was never exposed to music as kids, as a kid. And I find myself, that's really one of the things that I want to give to my daughters and my son as he gets older, is is that foundation of music, of learning music at a young age. Mm -hmm. None of your siblings like played instruments or anything no nothing but your dad yeah. would love you said he loved like uh, loved it yeah but never played anything and now. Stuff. yeah hmm. 
Do you um, listen to classical music a lot too? I've been getting like more and more into it. I, I wouldn't say I like put it on at home much, but yeah. when I teach, I I put on music on a little Bluetooth speaker in the classroom, and it's it's usually classical or sometimes jazz, but yeah. mostly instrumental, more to like create a, a vibe. <laughs> and I used to find it so boring, like anything that didn't have lyrics and like drums and electric guitars, I would I would kind of dismiss. Yeah, but. Music is is so abstract, just like abstract painting is, mm-hmm. and like just notes in sequence and rhythms are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They resonate with you no matter like what the genre is, and like classical music is so full of like rich content and the history too. Like yeah. you talk about like being a painter. <laughs> Um, I love that you listen to classical music now. I wouldn't have guessed because you're like the quintessential like '90s rock <laughs> yeah. guy. I yeah, know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's just because I'm older than you, so you like associate me. And I love but that I, music too. But that was the music I grew up on too. Just because, yeah. even though I was like too young to really appreciate it in its prime, when I started paying attention to music, it was still all all that was on the radio, like right. rock radio in the late '90s. Totally. Early 2000s, they were still playing Pearl Jam mm-hmm. and Nirvana and Smashing Pumpkins. So yeah. I, that was the first music I loved. So Yeah. And I, I feel like the music as a kid is what kind of sticks with you throughout your life for yeah. the most part. For sure. It's harder to, to get into brand new artists and, and music as you get older. It but is. Like classical music is like so rewarding to like dig into. It's, yeah, it's so rewarding. It's be- And there's always like the, the local classical music station on the radio too. So I find myself listening to it when, a lot when I drive, when falling asleep, um, in the studio. Um, and like I said, going to the ballet or the symphony. Mm-hmm. It's like really just calming meditative experiences um do you do you ever go to the joffrey here the ballet i've been on a couple like field trips in high school but not not as an adult (laughs) yeah because i'm thinking about going tomorrow night if you wanted to go but tomorrow night i think we're actually having band practice oh you are yeah (laughs) you should check it out because you can a lot of times you can get really reasonable price tickets too to go there um i found myself doing this a lot when i was in san francisco i would go to the symphony or the ballet by myself and wow there's some there it's a different experience when you go to a music event or like it's like going to a movie by yourself you know it just feels a little different yeah you know than when you go on a date or with a friend or friends or something do you ever get like restless sitting in a like a two hour classical concert or ballet like because i no. used to do get that all the time no it had the opposite effect wow cool and sometimes you 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 start daydreaming you know in that sort of way but it it has a way of bringing it into the present moment too yeah um but you can work through a lot of things in your head in that that lucid thinking kind of, you know. I'm going to have to try that because <laughs> I was like scarred by like my, my parents taking me to like a classical music concert growing up and like I would get so bored. I'd be like, That's, this is, 
going on and on. That's why I asked you about the Joffrey, because ballet is so beautiful, because you have the music, and then you can but you're visually, and they're you know performing in, in sync with the music as well. So it's like one plus one equals three, I find. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. And yeah, it's just, and ballet is fascinating to me too, because it's, it's an art form, but it's also, it's also athletic too. You know, like the physical physicality of it is so intense. What they can do with their bodies, yeah. Um, but they do everything artistically, and like then you think back, like, well, that's kind of what sports are. It's like art with your body. You know, it's just we don't we don't see it that way because of how all the other cultural. Um, constructs that have been built around it yeah and the competitive aspect like yeah kind of takes precedence you yeah know but if you can something. remove that like i remember i had a coach in high school who was a wrestling coach and he um he was a dedicated um buddhist and he would go to the ashram and meditate and talk about um being completely unaware of what the score was or the outcome of the the match or the results and being completely lost in the moment and the act of the move that you were doing at the time and that's Talking what, about wrestling yeah wrestling and that's what like ballet is too you yeah know, there's no scoreboard there's no like quote-unquote result just like completely focus on like the choreography and and the move the move the movement in the moment and um so it's like this it's an art but it's it's so physical how can it not be a, a sport too <laughs> you know um mm-hmm. so i feel like the ballet that with with the classical music on top of it is it's really empowering to watch i don't know anything about my wife did ballet growing up, so she knows a lot more of the technical. But even me as like a lay person who knows nothing about classical music, nothing about ballet, I still find myself really intrigued by it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it sounds beautiful. Does it even matter what the particular ballet is? Because they, they have like stories. They're like specific narratives. Yeah, I find for me, the, I mean, to each their own, but for me, I like more of like the minimalist, less story. Hmm. Less narrative where I can, I don't have to necessarily follow the the story behind it, but just be like focused on the movements. I find that like I'd rather have two dan two or three see watching two or three dancers on stage than like fifteen. Okay, but that's just my own personal kind of. Is that a common thing in like contemporary ballet to have like? Very minimal arrangement, just a couple dancers. That sounds more like modern dance or something. Um, I've seen everything, I guess. I don't, I don't yeah. know. But the one thing I saw at Joffrey was like the Nutcracker. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like a huge production, costumes, and like thirty dancers on the stage. They just redid it, I think, a year or two ago, where they have a completely different. Um, costumes and and set designs, and it looked amazing. The, at Joffrey. the Joffrey, yeah, at the Joffrey. Is Joffrey like a well-respected ballet company and like nationwide? 
Yeah, it was ori- well, it was originally in New York, and it moved to Chicago. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. When did it move? <laughs> don't know exactly when. I want to say like 15 years ago, but I don't know. Um. Oh, that recent? I could have sworn it's been here because back when I was in grade school, I had a classmate who was like a ballet prodigy, basically. And she went to my, she was in my class, but she like danced at the Joffrey, Mm. I think. As like when a child dancer. Yeah, that would have been like late 90s. You have to look that up. I don't know. What is the biggest ballet company in uh, New York called? Is there a famous um, one? A couple famous ones, I'm sure. What is it? Like I don't know off the top of my head, American Ballet Theater. That's what I was going to say. Something American Ballet something. Yeah. Is Juilliard a ballet school or is it just a music conservatory? I think that's both. But it's definitely dance. Yeah, it's definitely dance. Uh, Okay, I didn't realize. Yeah, I know it's like those classical music and stuff. And modern dance, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, so you're going to get your kids into playing music? Is that what you like, get them an instrument in their hand? They or are, uh, yeah. Really? What are, what are they yeah. learning? I started them off when they were, they were probably four, and they started taking a class that they had like ukulele and piano and violin, you know, just as a four-year-old, you know, just kind of yeah. learning how to hold instruments and whatnot. And then last year, I, they were in this class called Kids Rock, where <laughs> nice. there were drums, electric guitar, and keyboard. And there was another kid in there. It was my twins. And then there was another kid in the class who loved the drums. Um, now they're taking a piano class. So I just kind of want to expose them to things. You know, they do ballet yeah. and music, and eventually they'll play, like, soccer or whatnot. But art... You know, just I feel like as a parent, I want to expose them to different things and see what they naturally gravitate towards mm-hmm. and then encourage them, but not not force them into a certain path. Right. Because that might not be the path that's for them. But if at this age, you know, they're almost six, you just present to them like a buffet of different things and see what they like. And the reason I signed them up for about... For, um, uh, piano classes because I would ask them, what's your favorite instrument in this little class you're playing? You like the drums? Do you like violin? Ukulele? And they, they both said piano, piano. And I would ask them, you know, many times and they would always say piano, piano. So that's, I said, all right, we'll, we'll do a piano class. Yeah. You would know more about this, obviously, than I would, but... Um, their teacher told me that piano is a really great instrument to learn first because visually all of the keys are laid out. And if you can learn piano, then you can incorporate the same skills into other instruments. But if you were to learn like guitar first, it would be different because it's not as visual. Mm -hmm. That's, that's a really good way of putting it. I, I don't know if you know this, but I, I like my parents gave, got me in piano lessons when I was like from six to like, 11 or 12 I, I took know. like weekly piano lessons with a a Lithuanian pianist that my dad knew through his the college he taught at he taught in the music department there oh that's amazing and uh, I'm so grateful to them now that they they started me on that when they did because yeah. like I I think it really it made me understand music 
when I like today, even though, uh, be prepared for this with your daughters. Yeah. Like they might hate it. Totally. <laughs> they might get, feel like it's such a drag to have to like practice piano, like classical pieces, which, cause I did like, I, I liked it. And I liked like doing our little recitals. They were like a bit of excitement in my uh, grade school life where I got to feel like I was like making music and playing it for people. Totally. Like, it really super stressed me out too. But yeah, um, I'm grateful for that too. But the, the weekly lessons and practice, like, uh, like <laughs> I resented it at the time, but I'm really grateful now that yeah. they, I stuck with it for as long as I did, which I stopped playing piano at like 12 and switched to guitar and, and never really like studied piano that seriously after that. And totally. But it set the foundation. For yeah. You. And like that, that, um, that idea of like instilling discipline and a practice in a kid mm-hmm. that carries throughout your whole life, you know? Yeah. It's like part of being a parent, I feel like is, um, trying to do what's best for your kid, but also balancing that with just their, their happiness. Mm -hmm. So like if you go, you know, if you just let your kid do whatever the hell they want, whenever they want, that's not ultimately going to be good for them. But then if you force them to like, you know, do lessons every day, they're going to be miserable. So I I was thinking of like the Buddhists, like the middle road, the middle path, you know, of guiding them. Which is so like unsatisfying in the moment, <laughs> like the middle path, but it's the right answer. You don't get the like satisfaction of like saying like, screw this, I'm not touching it again. And you, <laughs> you don't get the like crazy like discipline of like really going full force yeah. into something, but like a little moderation like is sustainable and it ultimately is good for you. So. Totally. Like I was talking to their, their music teacher, um, I don't know, six months ago. And I was like, so how much, like, we don't have a piano at home. We're going to get one probably for their birthday in December. And Mm -hmm. I was like, well, when I do get a piano, like how much should the girls play? And he was like, they'll let you know. (laughs) So if you try to force them every day, you're going to play a half hour, that will backfire. He's like, so you'll naturally see if, if five minutes is good for them, then that's how long they should play, five minutes. If 15 yeah. minutes. And so he said, they'll, like, you, you provide them with these things, but then you also listen and, and watch. Not, not like parenting or teaching with a heavy hand. Yeah, that's this piano teacher sounds really wise, <laughs> or he's probably dealt with this a lot with parents and. He's and students. great. Yeah, he has a whole kind of school. He has a whole school, and he has kids, and mm-hmm. he's been through it both as a teacher and as a parent. So I think he's and he's been doing it for, I think thirty five years or something. So he has a lot of experience, but. Yeah, piano is like a great thing to learn uh, at that age because it's not so abrasive as like <laughs> violin is a beautiful instrument, but beginner violin is one of the most like mm. excruciating sounds on yeah. the planet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and if a student can like s- get super into it and develop like in a few years and sound like decent, right? <laughs> then it's okay. <laughs> yeah, it's such a hard instrument to learn because there's no frets. You have to like right. really have a like very developed ear to play in tune and like the physical it's very physically demanding 
guitar is a little bit the same way, but much easier from a like tuning perspective because of the frets. But yeah, the frets. It's pretty hard on the fingers, and there's a phys- there's physical limitations of totally. like, the size of an a guitar. Yeah, a six year old can play. It's like a ukulele is nice. Ukulele is nice. Kid. I've never really gone too deep into the ukulele world. Um, or but it's probably ukulele a great, like, yeah, <laughs> like great gateway into maybe guitar or bass or something. But piano, like, yeah, it'll really teach them how how music works and like the, at least the twelve notes of the yeah. Western music scale, which yeah. is not universal, by the way. Music piano is a little bit of a a compromise of like what sounds good to our western classical music ear like it's not not a universal thing that like those 12 notes the black and white keys are like the only notes in music oh really it's yeah (laughs) this is a bit going down a rabbit hole but like piano uses something called even temperament tuning where it's exactly the space between the octave is equal a low a and a high a (laughs) they're the same note but you divide up that octave, 12 into, I hope I'm saying the right number. It's 12 steps, but there's like 13 plus the high octave. They're divided equally, so you can play it on a piano with, it plays in every key equally well, hmm. but it's a bit of a compromise because <laughs> the, the <laughs> intervals that are most important to like harmony and like music are like a major third, which sounds very happy and hmm. harmonious. Uh, and a minor third sounds very sad. They're they're different on a piano than they would be on like a violin or something with no frets, where you just put your finger exactly that sweet spot uh, where it's, the note sounds perfect. A piano can't actually do that. A piano is a little bit sharp of a major third, and it might be a little flat of a minor third, but I could be wrong about that. But they're a little. The, it's a compromise to so it can play every key that you'd want to play in equally well. Um, but so do you think that you learning piano first enabled you to, to really appreciate or notice those differences between like piano to guitar or violin or... Do you want some of this? Yeah. <laughs> I, took, I took the only liquor we had in the house and brought you it over the here. audacity? I know. <laughs> No, thank you for tidying up the home before you left. It was kind of a train wreck when I left, and I was like, oh, man, Roger's going to think we're slobs. Are you kidding me? Me? And I was like, is the living room straightened up? And he's like, it's fine. It's right. He's like, this is what you call fine. It looks great to me. I wanted to say that it's interesting that it seems like you are such a compliment or, or of both your mom and your dad because your mom was an artist, a visual artist, and you said your dad got you in piano lessons and he taught in a music department. No, no. Uh, he knew a guy in his p- music department. Oh, but um, he wasn't in he the wasn't, music department. He, actually, he played a little like acoustic guitar and piano, but he wasn't a music teacher or anything. He was our history teacher. Okay. Um, so how... Um, so does your musicality 
come from just learning having lessons as a little kid? Probably, because neither of my parents are like super musically uh, inclined. Yeah, beyond just being appreciators of it. But like, so during your formative like your years, you were kind of doing both, though. Yes, I think they just like you are. They they were trying to be the best possible parents and like saw the value of like musical education as part of a well-rounded yeah. like life. So totally. they they got both me and my sister into it. And to appreciate at the very least to like appreciate the arts. Yeah, you know. And music is like sort of the the most pure one to appreciate. It just affects you on such an emotional level. Totally. And visual art can do it too, but music like speaks directly to your soul. <laughs> Music's more accessible, I feel like too. Yeah. Because it's it's everywhere. It like is. In visual art, you really have to make an effort to go. And see it and learn about learn about it, learn about it. Yes and no, but you have to go to the museum or the galleries or like know artists or take an art history class. Music, it's like you just turn on a knob and on your radio, there's music. It's a very. I mean, I agree. It really hits you emotionally, especially live music. Mm-hmm. But it's also very like in this day and age, a very uh, passive experience, too. Like, music's in the elevator or in, like, CVS or in a car when you're talking with your friend. It's just, it's kind of everywhere that it it becomes, like, nowhere. Like, when you go look at art in a museum, if you're really experiencing it, you're, like, standing in front of painting, it's just you and the painting and your, your... it's a one-to-one kind of direct experience. But music, a lot of times, it's like in the background or it's, uh, it's not, re- you're not like fully invested. Like think about the amount of times that a person will put a record on and just sit there with nothing else going on in the room and, and listen intently to the music. You're saying that's rare? I think it's very rare. Yeah. I mean, maybe you as a musician does that more often. No, I actually don't. But like, or, (laughs) or like the experience of going to a museum and looking at a work intently is kind of like going to a concert and really focusing on the music, you know? So, yeah. But music, uh, visual art happens at your the viewer's own pace. Like you can spend five seconds with a painting, mm-hmm. or you can spend half an hour with a painting. Like totally, uh, I <laughs> in our more like uh, hyperactive, like attention deficit age, like visual art is kind of a more um, accessible medium, and that it, it, you don't have to commit to like even listening to a whole four minute song. You just look at the painting and get what you need from it and you can move on. Yeah. Which is nice. You can see a whole museum in an hour and you'll be rushing, but you don't have to commit three hours of your evening to going to a concert and waiting in line and and all that stuff. Totally. I don't go to live music very often because it's just, it's so hard to stand for so long (laughs) standing room only pits and and just like the waiting between sets and it's it's stressful and (laughs) and yet it sounds so much better right like live music it 
the energy is yeah like amazing and to see a band like making the music in front of you is great but so many i've been let down by a lot of recent shows i've been to like bands that i felt were like real live rock bands because they're playing to tracks they have live bands but they they have extra stuff like mm. maybe a little synth part in the background or yeah. some backing vocals that they'll they'll play back which is fine on its own like it makes the band sound more full and more like the record but what it means is that everyone is playing to like a preset click track oh wow <laughs> that means they can line up with that backing vocal or backing track at all so there it removes like that spontaneity and that like looseness that i used to like love live music for course um like the bands that we both like like they don't do that but a lot of like modern like young up-and-coming rock indie bands they they all do that because it's the norm oh wow it lets you sound like way more professional with less equipment and less people on stage so keep more money for the band oh wow that's fascinating i didn't know that you can tell when it's happening because you'll just hear sounds that <laughs> there's no one making <laughs> right. on stage or like extra vocals when no one's singing. Yeah. Uh, but it kind of makes me like feel like it's not worth the, the, the effort to go see bands and mm. if they're, if that's just the norm and maybe Do you them... still keep up on like who the new bands are because a little bit, but... I feel like I haven't discovered other than Ila Bamba, who I absolutely love in the last like 15 years i, I really <laughs> yeah there's not a lot i don't out know there. what the new music is it's just a total hodgepodge of everything that came before and that's the way music always has been but the internet has like accelerated it to such a crazy degree mm, that yeah. it's just like it's very hard to keep up with and i think music is very like disposable and has a short lifespan now yeah yeah especially if you're young and in the part of your life where you're just devouring new music you probably jump from artist to artist like pretty quickly totally until you find one or two that really speak to you and you become a fan for his for the rest of your life or however long you uh that artist is still making music yeah but yeah it's such a different like world than when like we both started like listening to music and like where you had to go buy a cd <laughs> Or and like heard stuff on the radio that you liked, and you're like, "What is that?" And then mm-hmm. you like looked it up and or found out, and it was it was hard to find out sometimes. <laughs> yeah, or or this idea too that music was a like a record, like something you would listen straight through, and like the mm-hmm. previous song would influence the next song, and the flow of the the side or the album had an impact. Like the sum of the the parts were greater, you know. Yeah. Um, I think that's lost too. Um, like I have a, you know, record player at home with a lot of records and I play that. I really like the fact that I don't play digital music for my, my daughters. They know like music is on a record or, or they go to their music class and they make music. But this idea that there's a physicality, like there's a physical, um, object that creates the music and we listen, and you can watch it spinning, and hear it as a whole album. And it's not, at least the music that I get, it's not like digitized. You know, it's not like what you're describing. 
Yeah. It's not perfect. Like, albums weren't made that way, you know, back in the day. Um, Do me a favor and aim that mic a little more towards your mouth. You can say where you were, but just make sure it's yeah. like facing. It has a, a small pickup area. So I think that uh, with everything that, that's gained, something is lost, too. Like, music is so much more accessible now or democratized. Mm-hmm. Democratized. But it's not, it's not, um, it's so quickly to move on or to not be invested in it. It's like, oh, I don't like this song. I'll skip to, I'll skip. You know, they're not, the concept of an album is being lost in a lot of ways, too. Yeah, for sure. And the, like, the gatekeepers that would like, <laughs> determine what, how music reaches an audience have changed so much that it's and it's so like confusing to know like yeah. where where are people discovering music now? I don't even know where to start I don't know where you find new music uh, do you have Spotify do you use it or do you just like only listen to records and and vinyl and I, I listen to it if I'm like traveling or things like that but when I'm at home then yeah I listen to records uh, but even on Spotify, I just look at listen to my library. Yeah, you look up things, but there's apparently like a lot of artists get big from being on like curated Spotify playlists. Like there's yeah. just like person, they're not even artists themselves, but they like have are recognized for the like curating mm. playlists that people like. So there are people who follow these playlist <laughs> makers, and That's to get your music onto one of those oh, wow. is a is a gateway to to wow. like reaching. A wider audience. Yeah, that's how crazy it is. And then there's like social media, like TikTok has broken so many con- modern like pop stars and stuff. Oh, I but didn't know that. I don't really understand how <laughs> how that starts because uh, a song will get really huge and like go viral. Everyone in the who's on TikTok under the age of 21 will know this song, but. Only and because of that, it gets more popular, and people right. use it as the background in their videos, and it reaches more people. But yeah. I don't know how the original song got got, <laughs> got popular in the first place. Like, yeah. it's I guess there's just like people are searching for that viral sound that like you hear five seconds of, and you're like, oh, like let me use yeah. that, let me reshare it. Like, but that's it means like the the window you need to grab an audience. Is, is getting smaller and smaller. It's probably the same for visual art that you're trying to like get people's attention on Instagram or something with a painting. Like it has to like, it has to connect with people like that. Yeah. Uh, otherwise yeah. they just keep scrolling. It has to be like visually stimulating immediately. Like how a pop song, like I think about music, you know, a uh, pop song is is catchy and it's good, mm-hmm. and then after you listen to hear it ten or twenty times or fifty times, whatever the number is, then it you don't want to hear it ever again. <laughs> but like you think about the great albums or the great songs, you can listen to them for your life. You know they still impact you. Like Joshua Tree is still a fucking amazing album, um, but it might not grab you right away or like. I was talking to you earlier about No Code. Like, that album is so good. I still listen to it 30 years later, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and with visual art, it's like, it's the same thing. Like, on Instagram or something, oh, something might 
catch your eye right away because it's really vibrant or colorful. It looks cool, you know, and the artist can keep making them over and over again. And you can recognize it as, oh, that artist does this thing. And they're really, quote, cool. They look good. But, but like, what's going to have longevity? Is it, like, the pop song art? Or is it the art that maybe doesn't look so great on your phone? But when you experience it in person you know, over and over again, you can, you keep coming back to it, try to figure out what's going on there. Like, what is this, this person has something to say that's like, I can't quite grasp it yet. You know, that's why, um, I think social media and Instagram are, it's a double-edged sword because people want to get their art out there and show other people what they're doing but like it's really not a good medium to put out visual art. You, you lose scale uh, for a painter, at least like scale and texture mm-hmm. and and pasto and brushstroke and physicality. Like so much is lost. But you feel, but yet so many artists feel forced into this. It's like insufficient medium to put their work out there just just to share. Because artists, I think, naturally want to share what they're doing. Um, and that's a problem. Yeah. I think that's a that's a that's a dilemma that artists have to struggle with and kind of talk about and figure out. Like, are are people, artists, or appreciators of art experiencing art in person at greater numbers or lesser numbers because of social, Instagram or social media? You know, is it encouraging people to go to the galleries or the museums to see the work? Or is it discouraging them by by saying, well, I saw it. I saw the work on the installations on, on Instagram or on yeah. the website even for that matter. Um, because it's it's like listening to digital music versus going to the concert. You know? Yeah. There's a lot that's lost Like, yeah, I'm sure it encourages some people to get out there. They see something they like on on social media, and then they go, and maybe they're going so they can get their own photo op. With yeah. It, take a selfie in front of uh, something they saw on social media. And totally. So it, it probably promotes or, like, helps as much as it hurts and, like, means that some people are like, I don't need to see it. I already saw it. Yeah. Or like you see something, oh, that wasn't any good. I saw it on Instagram. Maybe it's a really different experience in person, though. The sun's coming into your eyes now. Yeah. Your eyes do look a little green or blue. They get they get kind of green sometimes. But you, when you're looking at that Sophie Calais poster <laughs> about the blue eyes, blonde hair, you said, my eyes aren't blue, but... They're not brown. <laughs> what do you call, what What do you call your eye color? I don't know because uh, they're either brown or hazel or green. I don't know. Okay, and it it can change. The rarest eye color. And what's the rare? I think like green is supposed to be pretty rare. Yeah, my mom used to have brown eyes. She was, and now she has one blue eye and one green eye. Oh. Yeah, and my eyes used to be brown-brown, and now they're like kind of more hazelish. 
Is that a thing? Like I guess eyes so. lightening? My eyes have definitely changed color, and my mom's have too. Wow. So I don't know if it's a genetic thing or what. But it's like David Bowie, didn't he have two different colored eyes? Oh, did he? Uh, I don't know what colors they were, but I know he was known for that. Hmm. Are you getting cold? I'm a no. little cold. You cold? <laughs> but you have a nice blazer. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like looking around. Like, is there a shirt around here I can put on? Um, but I won't chain wreck the continuity of the episode by changing outfits. You can change. Through. I like your Radiohead T-shirt. Thanks. Are they done? Are they still? Are they? I. I've read some like clickbaity news articles that say like Radiohead. It's finished because yeah. Tom York and Johnny Greenwood are doing The Smile now. Yeah, yeah. And the last Radiohead album was like probably their last. Yeah. I could see that being true. Uh, Ed O'Brien did a solo album That's too. Right. That's right. Do you Have you heard any of Johnny Greenwood's classical music? Well, I've, I've watched There Will Be Blood and that has... Some. Hang on a second. I'm just going to throw in a show. Okay. I should probably go in like 20 minutes or something, too. Yeah, that sounds... That's probably good. We're talking about Johnny Greenwood. Yeah, his... He does a lot of those soundtracks for Paul Thomas Anderson. Yeah. They're amazing. His classical music is unbelievable. He's just uber-talented. Yeah. Um, it? It's very like eight, like dissonant and unsettling, right? At yeah. least the one in there, there will be blood. Was. There will be blood. Has he done others for Paul Thomas Anderson? Yes, he did. Uh, what was it? Phantom Thread and The Master. Okay. Uh, he did that recent movie about Princess Diana. Oh, uh, really? The um, that's not Paul Thomas Anderson, though, is it? I think he did the soundtrack to that too. I th- I don't know who did the film. I haven't seen it. Did he do Licorice Pizza? I haven't seen the movie, but I know Paul Thomas Anderson has a new movie about like 70s L.A. uh, I don't know if Johnny Greenwood did that or not. It doesn't seem like a movie he would be involved in. Yeah, I don't think so. (laughs) Seems more lighthearted. Yeah, I think he's an incredible musician. I think Tom York is like an incredible songwriter too. Yeah, but bands kind of run their course. Like maybe the other members, they're not seeing eye to eye anymore. And I think it's really, really difficult for a band to be amazing for more than a decade. Yeah, I would agree. Ten, fifteen years. I think Radiohead between like ninety, like between OK Computer, kind of the bands. Yeah, even Pablo Honey, I think, is a great album. Yeah, they had like 15 years, I think. It's a long run. Yeah. I mean, like the Beatles were around for nine years. I know. So short. So short. Uh, Pearl Jam's getting up there. (laughs) It's crazy. (laughs) Like, they're, I mean, a lot of these bands start at the same time, and you can look at like the landscape of like. It sounds demeaning, but I would call them classic rock bands yeah. now. Pearl yeah. Jam, Foo totally. Fighters. Um. <laughs> Part of me wishes like they stopped making music years ago. Yeah, you know, like the Foo Fighter, like Foo Fighters. 
I look at like the first 10 years of Pearl Jam was really, really, really great. No like, Code had to be near the end of that, right? No Code came out in 96. What? Yeah. It's that early? Yeah. I thought it was like late 90s or even early 2000s or something. So should, it was their fifth, third, fourth album? It fifth came album? out after Vitology. It was their fourth album. You should just listen to the first side of No Code. Like the first side A is... It's just amazing. Like that I've album. Listen to it. Uh, my dad like collect like had Radiohead on CD, uh, Pearl Jam on CD. So I had that CD growing up, and I like tried to listen to it multiple times, and yeah. I would, it like never grabbed me like ten did. Uh, so I like kind of like I loved Pearl Jam. I loved Ten so much. I listened to that over and over, but I never really like No Code was too weird and like artsy for me. That's at why the I time. love. Yeah, I love it. It's um yeah it's definitely it's I would say it's their most eclectic album and it's it's um it was they did no promotion for it so they really wanted to lose fans which was kind of like so punk in a <laughs> they way they were fighting you know, with Ticketmaster like, too yeah like I was looking at the track list for No Code like on the train just now and yeah like i recognize the to- song titles hail hail is like a great like punky song yeah uh but like i couldn't remember how most of the others sounded. i think it's their most introspective album of any album okay. and the opening track sometimes is really quiet and subdued and it kind of sets the tone for the whole album and Every other album they've had, they've never started off with like a really quiet song. And so mm-hmm. I think just like right off the bat, you notice there's something different to it. Um, I remember the album art being really cool. The album art is great. The album art was based on the Talking Heads album. Um, hmm. I forget the Talking Heads album, but it, um, of all the Polaroids making up the four members of the Talking Heads, you can look up what it is. Um, yeah, I'll put a put a picture right here. Yeah, <laughs> and the No Code one. So yeah, and I remember that having that like, album. A bunch of I think was based on Hockney, Hockney's photographs. Uh, multiple multiple Polaroids, consisting of one image. Mm-hmm. So it's it's like two steps removed, but. Um, was Yield the next album after No yeah. Code? Okay. That yeah. seemed like to go back in a slightly more like commercial direction. Yeah. Yield and then Binaural. And then after Binaural, I think. <laughs> I mean, I still follow them, but not. It was, Yeah. I think, the first 10 years. Which goes back to my theory about him. Like a man. It's very true. Or even like artists too. I think it's really hard. I look at someone like even someone like the greats, like you know, Matisse or Picasso, like early stuff is like, usually the best. Uh, like <laughs> Matisse from nineteen oh five, six to like nineteen twenty. It's pretty fucking awesome. Yeah. And then he had the cutouts at the very end of his life, which were unbelievable. Picasso, the same thing, like the blue period, the rose period, cubism, like it's class classical work, yeah. same kind of time period. But then there's like oh, there's a lot of filler in there after that. <laughs> like that's kind of how it is. Like the Stones or Pearl Jam, you know, you get glimpses here and there of greatness, but. 
I, I wonder if that's just the fate of all creative people. Like you, you get your best work out at some point, you have a peak and it takes a while to get there. You're developing totally. your whole life to like figure out how to make that thing. But then once you hit it, like you can either repeat it, <laughs> yeah, which no one wants to do, or you experiment and branch out and, but it's never really going to reach the same yeah. heights. You're just kind of yeah. like keeping it going. That's why pavement's so amazing, or like Zeppelin, say, or like Nine, or the Beatles. There's no filler, like you know? It's stopped. just like, bang, boom, boom, nine out, like eight out, eight, yeah. and it's all, it's all great, you know? And like sometimes tragedy is involved, like Kurt dying yeah. in 94, like Nirvana's discography is like yeah. three super incredible albums and then nothing else totally so much uh either way you're screwed because then people want more (laughs) or (laughs) people say like they should have stopped making music you know you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't totally and if you survive being a rock star for 10 plus years you want to keep doing the thing totally like these guys are probably like still having a great time they're probably healthier and happier than ever yeah but that doesn't really make for good music <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah or art totally well there's something really intense about like your 20s i feel like yeah like things feel really like relationships are really intense at that age and mm-hmm. your passion and your beliefs and what you stand for and then i feel like as you get a little older you get more comfortable in your own skin and what you believe in and you're not you're not so rattled by other people um and that's great for your personal life but i don't know how great it is for like making a great great song (laughs) there are there are exceptions i will say bob dylan has had like yeah masterpieces of albums totally like there's a lot of filler in his discography but Mm -hmm. He has like great albums in his twenties, great albums in his thirties, like, like a couple of them, and even into his forties, fifties, sixties, he'll at least put out like, like one his or music two in the seventies, and yeah, some yeah, yeah. People say stuff that he made when he was like thirty-five, going through a divorce, like Blood on the Tracks, Blood like on his, the tracks, his greatest album, Blonde on Blonde. Yeah, Bruce Springsteen too has longevity. Like totally. he's made some incredible albums, like recently. Yeah, I love Bruce. I, I didn't discover him until like. In my 30s. Like, I mean, I knew about, obviously, like, Born in the USA and all that. And liked him as a kid, but I wasn't like, this guy's total badass. Yeah. And as I get older, I was like, wow, he is really, he is <laughs> something, that guy. And he's, and like, look at him now. He's still at it. Yeah. Like, he's got to be in his 70s. 70? I don't know how old he is, but that probably. I mean, his first album came out in 73. That's almost 50 years ago. Yeah, he still seems very, like, vital. Totally. He's like a guy who works out and, like, yeah. takes good care of himself so he can keep, like, kicking ass on yeah. stage. I actually got really into his uh, album that was sort of in response to 9-11, The Rising. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and I wasn't expecting to. I think, like, either my mom or my dad bought that CD, and I ended up, like, listening to it over and over because it... Not because I like thought the topic of nine eleven was like s- super compelling at at that age, like 
but there were really catchy songs weirdly enough about that topic like I, it made me realize what a great songwriter he is that he can turn something such a tragedy into like great like rock music with like some an emotional core to it I see that's where one. it's interesting when you just talked about 9-11 because i'm 12 years older than you so when that happened i was you were like 20 or what i was uh i was 24 24 so uh, in in the town i grew up in in long island there's a lot of commute commuters to find to uh downtown like finance i think there was like about 40 i think there was over 40 people from my town who died in it my best friend's dad died in 9-11 you know mm-hmm. and i used to live right down there when i lived in new york city so I used to go down there a lot with my daughters and stroll them around in the the water pools. Have you been there to like the, the yeah I have. Um, it's it's really well done and beautiful and intense and quiet. I used mm-hmm. to go down there at nighttime a lot and like watch just the water falling. Um, there's a painting I have in the show tonight that's based on that whole scene there. Mm-hmm. Um, but his album, I think it came out, he wrote some of those songs like really immediately after the aftermath of it all. Yeah. And I think he captured something pretty intense in those, the songs. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know what year that was. The, the, Rising. The, the Rising. Do you know what year the album came out? Because like... I would guess 2002, but I don't know. In my mind, I was still like... In my memory, I, I at least I was I was like at least like thirteen or fourteen when I heard it, but uh, which I guess that checks out. I was like twelve yeah. when nine eleven happened. Yeah. So, yeah, two thousand two, two thousand three sounds right. I've I've gone back since because my parents were not huge Springsteen fans, but they had like Born in the USA on vinyl. I think that was the only one I remember, like totally. scrounging from their record collection. Yeah. But I listened to that a bunch. And uh, what's the one with Thunder Road on it? Born to Run. Born to Run. You should listen to the album before Born to Run. Darkness it's, on the Edge of Town. Or? No, it's uh, it's the Wild, the Innocent, and the East Street Shuffle. Oh yeah, <laughs> I have heard that. I don't remember it super it's, well. I think it's seven or eight songs. It's really a great album. It didn't have like huge commercial success or anything like that. But that was right before Born to Run. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I used to know his discography better. Like I went through a phase. It was like around grad school, actually. Like when I started listening to all those albums a lot. Um, but it's that I haven't in a while. You can never go wrong with the boss. <laughs> Although apparently he hates that nickname. Really? Yeah, because he <laughs> it's like it was like a joke that he's the boss of every of all the other musicians and he's Oh, that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> he's um, like such a like working class hero yeah, kind of yeah. guy in his songwriting. Nebraska, Do you know that song Working album. Class Hero by John, John Lennon? Lennon? Yeah. Great song. Uh I actually forget how it goes, I but I know it's a John song. Lennon song. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure I know I've heard it. You can you can edit it into the podcast. Working class hero. 
I've actually, I haven't put any like actual music that we've discussed on a podcast into the podcast because I'm like, I know YouTube is weird about like removing videos that have copyrighted material yeah. and they have like automatic sensors that find music. Oh, really? But I think nowadays they just like monetize it and give the record label money when you, when people watch the video. Yeah. So I don't really care about that. I doubt they would find it on your they, they have like algorithms that mm. just like go through every video and like find they're trained to find copyrighted like waveforms they can just mm. see it with code it's pretty crazy but i'm not doing this to make money no code <laughs> no code fuck the code <laughs> it's like a matrix <laughs> pearl jam should have been the soundtrack of the matrix <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a very different movie. Instead, they got Rage Against the Machine yeah. for that first movie. So um, have you seen any good art that you're into lately? Art that I'm See, into? Yeah. What? Like in real life or uh, yeah, like in real on life. Instagram? Whatever. <laughs> um, let's see. What's been inspiring me lately? Does it have to be contemporary art? No, hell no. <laughs> okay. Like, did you do you ever see the did you see the Jacob Bassano? Uh do no. you know his work? J- J- Jacob Bassano? No. Who's that? Hey, oh wait. Jacopo? Hey, Jac- like the yeah. Italian name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was a little older than Al Greco. Okay. And there's a piece in the Art Institute that I was checking out yesterday that's gorgeous. And I know he was an influence on Al Greco, who you know my, is my favorite painter. Yeah. Um, I kept trying to. What is the painting you saw? I, if you describe I, it, I, I'll probably I recognize it. I took a picture it. of it. I'll do a bunch. It would be much better if you just look at it than me describing it. Um, let's see. I'm going to have to scroll past all these pictures we sent to Abel. <laughs> Where is it? Did I not take a picture? I don't think I took a picture of it. Is that? It's in one of the halls leading up to the Greco's. You were really into that one? I'll, yeah. I'll, uh, I'll look it up and put I a picture of it. I find myself being more and more into older art. Yeah. And less and less into contemporary art. <laughs> Same. I've, I've been on that train for a while. Yeah. Like I went to before the pandemic, we went to Madrid and we went to Toledo and the Prado and we saw the El Grecos in Toledo. He did paintings of Toledo. Did he live yeah. there or something? That's where he lived for like 30 years. That's in Spain? Yeah. It's like, it's like 40 minutes from Madrid. Oh. But like, you've never been to Europe, have you? No. Okay. I need to go. So you need badly. to go. I need to, I just want to go to go to museums. Yeah. I don't really care about really any other tourist attraction. I just want to go to go to a bunch of museums. <sighs> the museum, the museums is just the best. I have to live in Europe at some time just for this exact reason, just like the museums and the art and the history of the art. And yeah, it's just like you, we were talking about this earlier, like, Going to a contemporary museum is great and it's fun and you see what's happening now and what's going on and in our everyday culture and society, what's speaking to people. 
but like going to those museums that are based on art that's like 500 years old or 400 years old or whatnot, they've, they've stood the test of time, you know? So like work you're seeing at the Prado, like it's still hanging on the walls 400 years later and they're spectacular. And then you go to like a contemporary museum today and you think, what art here, or like you go to MoMA, like what art here is going to be hanging on these walls in 400 years? Yeah. (laughs) So it plays tricks with your mind in a way. But the reason um, El Greco and Toledo is so fantastic is because you see a lot of these works in situ where they're just, they were painted for a specific church, for a specific place, and they're still there. Four hundred years later, wow! And they're not. It's not like going to see the Mona Lisa, where there's four hundred other people looking at it behind a bulletproof glass. Do they charge admission to get into like a church to see? It depends which one you go to, but like it's minimal, you know. But like the burial of Count Orgaz, like the El Greco piece, like I looked at that. It's a total masterpiece and there was like six other people looking at it with me and it was in the small little church in Toledo and Mm -hmm. um, it's a different experience you know like have you been to the Barnes Foundation in uh, Philadelphia yeah you you recommended that we go on our road trip but we we've skipped Philadelphia we just went straight from like Delaware to New York yeah it's a similar thing. That's like more impressionist, right? Uh, well, he has. A, uh, there's more Cezans in that collection than all of Paris combined. Um, so he has a lot of Cezans, a lot of Renoir, um, Picasso, Matisse. Um, I'm trying to think what else he has. Like just, he has some El Grecos. Um, but they limit the amount of tickets that you can, that mm. are sold each day. So and everything's a... hung salon style. So you go into a room, like it's like the size of this room, and there'll be like seven Picassos and 14 Cezans. <laughs> it's like crazy. <laughs> but you're alone in this room. And salon it's a style? totally different experience. Will there be stuff like hung right way high up on the wall? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I always think they need to have like a stepladder to uh to get to work that's hung high up in salon style because i need to i need to look at a painting like two (laughs) centimeters away (laughs) that's my preferred way to look at art in a museum yeah yeah, yeah. how do they do that but like you think about like going to to moma or the whitney or something and there are people all over and people are using their phones to take pictures and how that affects your experience of of seeing art yeah, and then you go somewhere where you're alone in a room with these masterpieces, where you can just stand really close to them and be like, "Holy shit! Wow, it's a completely different experience. It's much more intimate and like mm, emotionally moving, or you know, you can get lost in it." Yeah, but I so you need gotta to get yeah, back to Philly. To, gotta be, get back to the East Coast in general, but Philly should be on our next yeah. stop. And Boston, you definitely and, need to get to the barn and Concord, <laughs> yes. New, New Hampshire. <laughs> but Europe too. Yeah, 
I don't know what I'm waiting for. Like, I just like, I'm such a homebody that I like yeah. travel is not really my strong suit, but I love it when I get, when I force myself to do it. So I just need to like buy it. I would think someone like you too, where you really appreciate technical painting and like Renaissance painting and like, like go, go to Amsterdam yeah, I you love know. the like, northern, like the Flemish, Netherlandish painters. They, they're like my favorite. Yeah. Maybe I should go to Amsterdam. Amsterdam would be great. Get really high and totally eat mushrooms from a cafe. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, you can just buy psychedelic That's mushrooms. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds actually a little scary to do in a foreign <laughs> city in public. Yeah. But Amsterdam would be a perfect spot. Vermeers and Rembrandts, and but I liked it a lot of the Spanish painters. So you gotta go to the Prado yeah. and S- Spain sounds great. You went to Madrid just last year, you said, or we went right before the pandemic. Oh, okay. was it before the pandemic? What, my wife's. You took the kids. You took no. My wife's good friend got married. I'm trying to remember if this was the same trip because I went twice. I think we no, we went before the pandemic. And we, I wanted to go to Toledo because I want to see all the El Grecos. That was like why we mm-hmm. went. But then we went to Madrid too. So that was a special detour, El Greco. Well, trip. yeah, we went to because Megan knows El Greco is my favorite painter, and I would be like, I gotta go to Spain. I gotta go to Toledo. I gotta see these paintings in person. And so she was like, Let's go to Madrid, and it's not far. And so we we went to Spain. It was unbelievable to Prado or like Guernica that's right there you know it's in Madrid the Picasso yeah it's in Madrid yeah um one of my favorite contemporary like realist painters lives and works in Madrid he's like 89 or something now Antonio Lopez Garcia have you heard of him no he's like a well he's contemporary artist uh but he's 89? Yeah. yeah. How do you That's know? That's just his a guess. Work? But he's he's like world famous for just like extremely detailed, like not detailed, but like super good perceptual painting. He does like rooftop scenes of Madrid, just mm. like on a rooftop painting. Uh, he does paints figures and stuff too. Awesome. But he's just such a badass. There's actually a movie about him like painting a tree in his backyard that some documentarian made and just shows him like mixing color and trying to like paint these quince fruits like on this tree and like wiping it away like oh it's not good enough and like yeah, doing yeah. it again and you just see him paint and it's like it's really inspiring yeah i saw it in a like art history class in undergrad and it just like stuck with me ever since isn't that so fascinating how certain things will stick with certain pe- artists other yeah. you know they're i'm sure other art Kids in that class who have no idea. That's just, yeah. We have so many blind spots. Like, I see, like, the MCA bookstore today. Mm -hmm. I was like, there's so many amazing artists out there with books, like, about their work. And I, like, don't know half these names. There's so many great artists out there. And, like, that's why I love collecting art books, too, because you can access their art. Without spending like ten grand to buy a painting, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but I mean, a flat reproduction in a, a printout is of course 
this comes back to the conversation we had about Instagram. It's yeah. like a reproduction. Yeah. Of a, it's a reference. Yeah. Um, how did you discover him? You discovered him in that class, and did you ever see any of them in person? Never in person. It was it was partially that class, and then uh, one of my favorite painting teachers at SAIC in undergrad, this, like, very uh, cranky but, like, hilarious Polish dude named Marian Kritschka, who's uh, just passed away this past summer. He had Parkinson's and retired uh. a few years ago, and... and uh, and then I was like actually shocked when I found out he died. Oh. And it was really sad because he was yeah. only like in his mid 60s. Oh, he was young. Yeah, he wasn't that old, but the illness, I think, played a role. Totally. But he was a huge Antonio Lopez Garcia fan. He would have books of his work in the classroom. And oh, he like wow. held him up as like a uh, pinnacle of like contemporary figurative and perceptual painting. And so he turned me on to him initially. And now I'd like tell my students about him because I think he's amazing. So That's just so like, awesome. You're passing it forward. Yeah. I should really like start showing him Marion's work because he was a weird, wild guy. His work was like, he would often just like paint naked women that he just like invited to his studio yeah. <laughs> to pose for him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Paint, paint them. It's like... Uh, Kevin's calling me. Okay. He probably wants us to get over there. Hey, Farrell. I'm late. We're coming over. Yes. I'll see you soon. Bye. Shit, it's 5.30. Oh, shit. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for watching. Thank you for having me. That was fun. <laughs> Thank you, Roger. Thanks for enduring my rambling questions. Yeah, you're you're a good mm. interviewer. I think your uh, comfort as a guest and a a interviewee made <laughs> me a better interviewer. So this is like the longest podcast. <laughs> it's in, in podcast. I don't think it really was. We can check. Did you guys just start when I got here? No, we had been going for like an hour. I think we should. <laughs> Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> this is a three-hour podcast. Well, with editing, I'll cut it down. It, I, you have to edit the first half hour when we were talking about Guns and Roses. <laughs> that, that wasn't even a half hour. That's like two minutes. Yeah. I can't really tell how long it is, but the clock says three hours and 43 minutes, but I think it's more like two hours yeah, and 43 minutes. Right. Wow. This is the longest podcast to date. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, like we I haven't seen all the other podcasts four years or whatever. <laughs> How long has it been? Maybe more. When yes. were you last? I was, I think at your, no, 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 no. Cause you came to Chicago in 2018. That's four years ago though. Oh, pff. But did I see you in New York after that? No. Not after that, no. Isn't that amazing how fast time goes now? Pretty wild. That is crazy. It doesn't feel that long. No. It feels like a year or two. Yeah, but like when you think about it, a lot's happened. It's just like the little like 
yeah. when you chop it up and say like, oh, the last time I saw Roger was four years ago. It's like, damn, it doesn't feel like that long, but something was a year ago. Like that also feels about the same. So time is just a mess. Time is a construct. Do you remember when I first met you? You had long hair. Long. <laughs> it was probably like just like a like kind of a no, lush grown it was long. Oh, at that orientation. Yeah. You and Megan flew out yeah, from yeah, yeah, Ca- yeah. San Francisco to. I Orient. remember I missed the flight because I got to the airport on time and I I was really hungry, and so I got a <laughs> breakfast burrito and I sat and ate it at the San Francisco airport, and they didn't announce like last call come to the air come to your gate so i was sitting literally like outside not far from the gate and they boarded everyone and then closed the door and then i walked to the gate i was like i'm here and they were like we closed the door like what are you talking about so i just sit i sat there for like seven hours until the next flight and then i flew to the orientation yeah all right let's let's go Want me to give you a lift over to Pilsen? If you can. Yeah, because I'm like an hour late. Unfortunately, the mic didn't catch that. But anyway, goodbye.